I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And if you're one of our patrons, this is your extended, ad-free, higher-quality version of this week's show. And if you're not yet a patron but would like to get the aforementioned ad-free, extended, high-quality version of the show and listen and interact with us live, head to patreon.com forward slash UK tech. Get instant access as well to our entire back catalogue of extended shows. And thank you to Ross and Matt Dawson-Jones for, for joining us or for upgrading their pledges um this week it's fantastic to have you with us or slightly more with us in the case of matt uh, who moved up to our five dollar tier thank you very much now later on in the show we're going to be joined by a becoming a regular guest naomi kerbel um, and we'll come to why she is joining us at the point that she joins us but that's in a few minutes first though ian let's talk about the bbc because it said that its podcasts are no longer available on certain google products so this includes the google podcast app and the google assistant In a blog post, Kieran Clifton, who is the director of BBC Distribution and Business Development, said this was because Google launched its own podcast app for Android users and has since begun to direct people who search for a BBC podcast into its own podcast service rather than BBC Sounds or other third-party services. Clifton said this reduces people's choice and is an approach that the BBC is not comfortable with. The blog went on to say that the BBC doesn't like removing its content from services and certainly doesn't do it lightly, but, quote, unfortunately, until Google changes the way they look at this, for the good of listeners, our podcasts will not be available on some of their services. Now, this doesn't prevent anyone from looking up the RSS feed URL of a BBC podcast and manually adding it into their podcast apps on Android. So it's not that the BBC is fundamentally blocking Android or Google users, but... I have a deeper issue with this, Ian. It's what we're going to debate yes. now. Uh, and it's around the BBC's really aggressive marketing of its Sounds app. Now, mm. the BBC is pushing the service harder than I've seen it push even the iPlayer in recent years. And the Sounds app is essentially the iPlayer, but for radio and podcasts instead of TV and video. And if you listen to any BBC podcasts, you're very likely to hear hosts plugging the app. If you load the BBC News app as well on um, on Apple News on iOS, you'll see a giant ad for BBC Sounds. And if you load any of the stories through that app, you'll also see a big fat promo for BBC Sounds embedded within those articles as well, and usually pretty high up. It's almost impossible, actually, to get away from it. And now the removal of podcasts from Google Podcast and Assistant uh, is a direct result of the BBC not being happy that the Sounds app is not getting you know enough attention. And just before I let Ian actually say something, um, on the other side of the fence, I am... I should. I really want to point out, by no means against a company putting pressure on a giant international tech giant um, in an effort to prevent them from monopolizing a market. But the BBC is a bit different because it, A, has a duty under license fee rules to make its content available on popular platforms. Um, and this particular issue, B, is worsened by the fact that podcasts are, by definition, and 
always should be platform and device agnostic. It's an MP3 enclosed within an RSS feed and anything that tries to shackle that, in my opinion, um, by means of paywalling or device blocking or other measures, whatever, risks turning the medium into a bit of a fragmented beast. Um, and so I'm not happy with podcasts being the uh, the collateral in uh, in a fight against between platforms. So, Ian... I need to stop saying words. Would you like to say some words? Well, I do, but I'm also a little bit confused. I don't really understand um, what Google's thinking here is about why it is they would sort of direct people a different way. I mean, if so, if the, I'm thinking the example is I want to find, say, the uh, Kermode and Mayo film podcast. If I search in the Google podcasting app on my Android device, am I not going to find it through there at all? I'm going to have to have manually add it via an RSS feed. As I understand it, that's correct. Okay, but that was the BBC's decision to pull that. If if they hadn't done it, what would have, what would I have found if I'd just searched Google? Surely they would have listed that podcast. Well, I think the difference is is that Go- if you're on an Android device, and people can check this and correct us if we're we're wrong here. If you are on a Google device and you search Google for a podcast, the app, when you click on that podcast, it will open that in your Google Podcasts app. And that's a problem for the BBC because it wants people to open it in the BBC Sounds Yeah, but uh, that doesn't make any sense. That's nonsense. I mean, that really doesn't ring true to me. And I completely understand what you're saying. And I know that the BBC's had some hassle about the, the Sounds app because it's obviously invested a lot of money into developing it. It wants it to be very popular. It's very targeted at the young audience, which they are struggling with, which is understandable because obviously the BBC does tend to skew a little bit older, as in general, because people are not consuming media in the old way that they used to. Um, but I think that this, this definitely, like you said, sounds much more like a BBC decision, and I I find that quite frustrating. Well, um, it is entirely a BBC decision. You know, BB, the BBC had said in, in this blog post that it, it had tried to talk to Google, it tried to get this worked out, but that, you know, whatever Google said was not, you know, coming... But Google is presumably treating everyone the same. There is no... I mean, it, say if there was... Say if there was a text message app... We would not have any more luck getting them to launch that from the search than we than the BBC. So well, that's the, treating everyone the same, and then it's aggregating into one podcasting app. And there are other podcasting apps if but, you want to use one. But the problem the problem is is that. It, you have to sort of st- take a step back, actually, and look at the bigger problem in, faced by large, particularly large podcast networks is that data from podcasting is exceptionally hard to get by nature mm. of its design. You know, you have an RSS feed with an MP3 file yeah. you download. Now, there are so many issues with this as a, as, as, as a you know, as a way of distributing media, because, for example, if I and this does happen with me you know i i use um i use what do i use i use overcast now as my main app so there's overcast on the web i have overcast the app on my ipad i have the overcast app on my iphone and they're all in sync yes so you can start on one and finish on another and there's yeah which is great exactly but on the ios apps i have them both set to automatically down new uh, download new content so i appear to be three um, listeners or something to be three listeners yeah, yeah because all are from three different ip addresses mm. and all are downloaded plus making that worse once you've got that device on your platform uh, sorry on your on your um you know on your de- uh, well sorry, you've got the download on your device sorry there's no way of the pro- the publisher of that episode knowing how far through did you listen um mm. did you download it once on one device and then listen to the other half of it on another device there's no really good way of doing that unless you are using an app that that provider either 
produced itself or yes. has a deal with. So the BBC Sounds app being the example that they can track everything across it, all your devices. Exactly. So it doesn't matter then that you're de- listening on multiple platforms because they are the provider of that platform. Mm. And, you know, for full disclosure, you know, we are um, promoted, what are we, uh, hosted, distributed, yeah. hosted through Acast. And if you listen on um, an, the Acast app, for example, you're still getting the same file as everybody else. But if you're listening within the app, then Acast knows who you are. Yeah. And so... And can track your how far through each podcast you got. And- yeah. So it helps eliminate some of that duplication. And that's huge because for publishers like, um, like the BBC, obviously there's a huge commercial benefit to them knowing how many ex- exactly how many listeners they have how engaged are they in uh, listening and it, it moves them away from having to rely on things like surveys and and, and aggregate data and things and um, there is of course the argument that in fact that Google is and Apple also are aggregating that data based on the information they have about people so for example I still for some reason use the Apple podcast app even though I find it quite frustrating um, but presumably that means that Apple knows which podcasts I listen to what I've made it through um, and I'm and I'm assuming that they don't share that with the producers. Actually, they do. Oh, do they? So, so that, can you get some information? Depending on how important you are, uh, and I'm okay. pleased to say that in the past I have had access to this data, you do get limited demographic information. It's, okay. it's highly anonymized. Well, you would expect so. But it's things like, you know, it's your it's your age range, it's where you're based, it's device type, mm-hmm. things like that. And it helps you get a sense. What you don't get is things like, you know, how far through do people play? Yeah. Now, we do know that Apple wants to do more with podcasting in general, uh, but we also know, and we're going to come to this a little later in the extended version of this show, um, about Apple's view on on privacy of that data and not sharing it with providers. And so I actually don't expect that um, that some providers are going to get tons of useful data out of Apple. No, and I don't think they should. I mean, like you said, it, it, privacy is, privacy, whatever, is, much, is, a, is a, such an important issue for Apple, and it is the one distinction that it makes over Google, for example. And we also know, just to, to close things off here, we also know from a TechCrunch report that the BBC is in talks with other media companies to add their podcasts and live radio streams to the Sounds app. And that's a move that, that you know the BBC hopes is not just going to help the BBC itself, but also other media owners find some more capacity competitive leverage against not only Google but also Apple and Spotify. Um, again, this according to TechCrunch says that the latter two currently account for 80% of the podcast and music streaming market in the UK. It's a shame that there isn't um, uh, no one has developed a standard for collecting data that was, uh, you know, in the way that RSS is an open standard and allows you know people to um, easily get access to, to feeds of information. It's a shame that no one has generated a thing um, where, say, you embed a, uh, a response URL in the podcast stream so that they, so each company could send some limited data back to the podcast owner, and that you could then m- maybe you know some if you as we're on Acast something like that. So Acast is then able to see some data based on that. I mean, but again, it's a hacked together system, isn't it? It's not designed to convey podcasts really um, it just happens that that was the only way of doing it but it's all about balance and at the end of the day if you if you know how many downloads you're getting if you have say I don't know 10 million downloads a month mm. you know which a, a popular podcast would possibly do very popular podcast 100 you know 10 million downloads a month or something like the daily I think the daily gets I want to say 40 million downloads a month wow I was I met a guy who who works on it only 
couple of days ago, and I th- and I think he said it's forty million downloads a month. If you get that, but you know, but but say pretend that the daily had um, a BBC sound was on a BBC Sounds type app, and you know that a million listeners are listening through that, and you get good data. Like that's a fantastically large sample size to then extrapolate to the other thirty nine million people, mm. and you can use that as a way of of getting some good data. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but someone has to do something and i do like the bbc's approach to building this as a new platform i just don't necessarily like the aggressive way that it's it's pushing it and it's and it's using um it's using podcasts themselves as the collateral to do yeah, that yeah i i agree and it, <clears throat> it doesn't feel like a very bbc thing to do to me um i mean the bbc is already in itself a massive producer of content um and it it i mean it's easy for us to get kind of het up about this and i i have some sympathy for us in this regard because you know, you we we work well. You particularly work very hard to produce a podcast each week. Lots of effort goes into it, but we are all automatically at a, a disadvantage when you come to companies like NPR in the US, the BBC in the UK. These big companies or celebrities who launch podcasts and automatically have an audience of ten million people or whatever. You know, it, it is always going to be harder for smaller. But people, so I suppose if the BBC could help with that, then that's good. But again, I would it's... love it. I, and, and this is the thing: like, I don't want to sound like I'm fundamentally against BBC Sounds. I'm, I'm fundamentally very much in favour of it. Yeah. What I'm just very against is this this pulling of content, you know, for 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 Android users and Google Podcast users, because I just feel that it's all a drive to push that app, and I don't think that's the right way to push um, that app. But does um does Spotify give you any? better da- data about listens it may do but if it does i i, I haven't you seen haven't any seen i mean it. we're on spotify and, and yeah. you know people who want to listen to us through spotify they can but even spotify those podcasts um they're delivered by rss it's the same yeah. mp3 file the file is coming from Acast in our case and is going via rss into spotify and that's how you listen to it mm. so again the data is still coming from one source the only difference with spotify being of course you can't add your own rss feeds which i which is crazy but you can that's how we're well, in it well no but I'm, what i mean by that is a listener can't decide that a podcast that isn't on spotify they can't add a podcast themselves. I didn't know that. Well, I mean, that's my assumption. I've never seen any functionality that would suggest it's possible. Maybe somebody who's using Spotify for podcasts could tell us if this is possible, mm. because um, I'm not 100% sure. But I mean, if Spotify wants to be a, a leader in podcasting, I would assume it either does let you do that or very soon would enable it. But um, well, we're going to wrap it up there. It's something that uh, that touches Ian and I uh, very deeply and, and passionately, this, uh, uh, this subject. But let us know any thoughts you have on this, experiences you have, thoughts on BBC Sounds, and so forth. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Well, Gizmodo had a great write-up this week about the UK Office for National Statistics report that found 1.5 million of our nation's workers are at, quote, high risk of losing their jobs to automation. Uh, They quote, In 2017, out of the 19.9 million jobs analysed in England, 7.4% of people were employed in jobs at high risk of automation. Again, this is all according to the report. 
But women and part-time workers are most vulnerable, it said. Now, Gizmodo also noted that Unite, the UK's second largest trade union, took the opportunity to call for a shorter working week. Unite said a shorter working week without any loss of pay could help workers stay in work when new technology reduces the number of tasks that need to be done by people. Now, there's a lot of great context in Gizmodo's story, uh, which was written by uh, Brian Merchant, and we're going to link to that in the show notes and in the MP3 description in your podcatcher. Um, now, it's it's not new analysis to suggest automation is coming for many of our jobs, and many journalists are well aware that robots are already writing uh, many of our news stories, but that tends to free us up, and I speak from personal experience here, to work on bigger, more important stories. So we're not going to cover that today. Instead, I wanted to focus on two issues that we've otherwise referenced. One, that automation could more seriously affect women, and that a shorter working week could be beneficial to anyone affected by the rise of AI. And to help us understand part of this issue, we're welcoming back a popular voice on the show, Naomi Kerbel, whose podcast Show Me The Way dives deeply into issues affecting women in a variety of professions, professions, and uh, she joined us a couple of weeks ago and she's back now thank you very much for having me it's great to be here my pleasure so what stood out to you in this report regarding automation and women well it it was interesting that it was it identified kind of waiters waitresses shelf fillers i also i don't i dived dove which is it i think both work okay so i dove into the report uh from the ons and i noticed that the increase in risk of automation is particularly prevalent um, from the age of 35. Mm -hmm. And that's because of a change in working patterns. And I think that we can then go on a little later to talk about flex work. But that's because at that age, it's assumed that more women will start to work part time. Ultimately, it's the job itself that determines how at risk you are. I was looking a bit further into it and there was a great article um, on Forbes written by um, one of the UK managers from LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. a guy called Joshua Graff. And they did a study, a recent study over the last few days with the World Economic Forum to try to quantify the global gender gap. Um, They paid particular attention to the... um, to AI and what I found on this. So so what I was trying to see is, okay, so women are losing out mm-hmm. in these lower pay, lower skilled jobs, um, which they might go into part time, but also what women, what can women then do to educate themselves to kind of uh, learn more about AI to sort of fill those gaps? And I was a bit shocked to find out that only 22% of people with AI skills are women. Right. So, and what counts as an AI skill in that regard? Well, that's a good point. I didn't look into that. I see. But, no, but I mean, AI, I mean, we're talking computer science. We're talking about, um, you know, things that are broadly connected to STEM education. And, and we know that there's a shortage as well um, of, of, of skilled women in those fields, partly due to the fact that, you know, we're not necessarily making those jobs as attractive to women to be trained in in the first place. Yeah. So I'd assume that was probably part of it. Yeah, they were, they were saying that in, of that 22%, there's a lot in academia, not so many are in software engineering. So that goes to your point. I exactly. see, okay. Um, so, so if we kind of extrapolate that further, that means that the algorithms that will influence opportunities for men and women in the future are being built by one gender, mm-hmm. men, uh, which raises the real concern that AI could embed a new kind of unconscious bias into the the workplace into those opportunities i see so it's even bigger 
an issue. Yeah. And and one of the things that you mentioned when, when I, I ran this past you earlier today was that um, because a lot of administrative jobs are, are currently held by women and those sorts of administrative jobs, data entry, uh, you know, management, things that involves you know, sitting at a computer and, and organizing a lot of stuff, that is something that automation and AI is known to be a big threat to. And so by default, since so many more women are doing those sorts of jobs, then they're going to lose out more so than men simply because fewer men maybe are doing those kinds of yeah. jobs. I mean, in your head, how much of an issue is, I mean, obviously it's an issue, but how how big of an issue in the grand scheme of things is, is that side of the argument, would you say? Um, I think... I think that the administrative side is concerning. You know, as women, we are um, invariably we do those sorts. We we end up doing the kind of the scheduling, the admin. We go for roles that are seen to be slightly less involved, perhaps. Um, So yeah, I think that that's probably uh, yeah. It is it 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 is a concern. The part time aspect of it, I think, is also. Uh, an issue. Yeah. Presumably one solution would be to train women to do the role of programming the things that replace the jobs, right? So it would be, it would make sense for us to encourage our, you know, uh, school age and university age girls to, you know, get involved in coding and stuff like that. That's but- it. it. Always, I mean, I always bring it back to the pipeline and I liken it to, um, to sports. You know, we train up kids to you know, it, training camps for football, for example, and you've got those children starting at three, four, five. And if we were to do that um, with STEM subjects, really get kids involved in coding really early, then we are going to create that pipeline for the future, which is not gender, race, um, ethnicity specific, which mm. is incredibly important. And I think cool. to your point as well, Ian, um, the fact that the first computer programmer was a woman, yep, Ada Lovelace, good old Ada, you know, is. Uh, I mean, it says a lot. It does, and um, I mean, also, I, for, for, I mean, obviously, I, I'm faced with an ongoing issue as you know, as you get older, and you, you know, the, especially in journalism, where you know, salaries are not necessarily good enough to sustain older people. I'm thinking, from my perspective, about how would I retrain. So it would be quite good to have like government support for people. You know, if there's people affected by you know job losses through automation, then you know, can we? make sure that there's training available for people so that they can become coders or you know learn how to operate the machines that you know I, I do think that I've had conversations with people who have said that um, automation often assists in jobs and doesn't always completely replace it mm. but there might be a big jump between being the person that does say data entry and learning how to you know fix the technology that does the automation so really I think it, it comes a lot down to perhaps making employers responsible for paying for retraining and stuff like that um, but of course that doesn't address the specific gender inequality or the fact that NASA doesn't have enough spacesuits for women I mean that's yeah I mean that's a that's a parallel issue isn't it I mean the fact is all of these issues need tackling yeah um, and they all they all sort of feed into each other but the other aspect that came out in this report uh, well in the Gizmodo story was uh, the reference to the Unite group that suggested this shorter working week as being one of the uh, possible um, I say side effects to, to the rise of automation but it's something that's proposed as a way of, um, of of offsetting the fact that a lot of roles are going to get automated. Mm. And I can't, I haven't been able to work out exactly how I feel about this because on the one hand, I'm wildly in favour of a shorter uh, yes. working week. Um, on the other hand, I'm sort of against the thinking that um, if, if AI 
is taking up one day a week's worth of work or is taking 20% of our um of our of our tasks if you like why would we not then just want to do put the other you put that 20% into a new type of responsibility you know i don't necessarily think that that's the reason to have a short week any more than just if you can have a short week and you want it then do it if that makes any sense i mean Naomi, have you would you think about or ian even since you know Naomi and I work together. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think about a shorter working week? I'm all for it, obviously, but people have bills, and I mean, it would be it would be very difficult for most people um, to. Yeah, I don't imagine the employer is going to pay you 100 percent of your salary no, to work. No, but I mean, of the time. I am reminded of Bill Gates' suggestion that we tax the robots, and I'm and ultimately, I th- I think the solution to all of our problems is to automate everything and have a universal basic income that enables people to do whatever they want. So, you know, we, some of us are doing jobs that we don't like very much, but we do them to earn a living. The idea being that a universal basic income would be, you know, a, a taken from taxation. There wouldn't be benefits as such, but everyone would have a starting amount of money and then they could do what they wanted to earn the rest of the money, but it would be much more possible to follow your passion. So Gates' idea was tax robots so if you put a robot in a factory then you you have a a prevailing tax rate because obviously the employer is going to save money on not having a human so by taxing each robot you then generate an income for the government and stuff like that and then people can have and you can have a smaller starting salary because you you know ultimately you wouldn't then need to earn quite as much and there are tests about ubi but i don't know how practical it is some countries are slightly better set up for it than the UK. I mean, I, I have a great deal of respect for Bill Gates, um, as I believe most people probably should. He did also suggest that a way to combat spam was to charge for postage. He did. I read that story, funnily enough. I read that story again because I was thinking about spam for some reason. No, because I'm always thinking about spam because I'm always getting it. Yes. And I did unearth that letter he wrote because obviously Bill Gates is one of the ones that always gets targeted for Bill Gates will give you $100 if you forward this email. So he'd written about this back years ago and it is only available on the web archive but it was yes yeah also available in my mind yes but also i mean he's he's not wrong about that like if there was a way to charge for email like it would probably cut down on spam fundamentally he's correct yes, yes. um but nobody's going to pay for email no um no. naomi thank you very much for, for for joining us um do check out her podcast Show Me The Way, which is available where all good podcasts are found. Um, and Naomi, we'll have to have you back in the future to talk about uh, more issues. Thanks for having me. Britain's chatbots are being abused, Ian. According to oh, no. a B- according to a BBC write-up this week, some of these automated chat chat helplines are being asked to send naked, nudie pictures of themselves and deal with some very fruity language indeed. On the one hand, it just serves as further evidence that if a human being is given tools to communicate with an entity, that person will inevitably end up asking for explicit images. We don't discriminate. We'll ask humans for nudes. We'll ask robots for nudes. The BBC wrote, though, that one financial chatbot had been asked out on a date nearly 2,000 times and to send nude pictures more than 1,000 times, according to its makers, Clio AI. The chatbot now responds to those sorts of requests by sending an image of a circuit board. (laughs) Very good. It's good, isn't it? Uh, it's not only that, actually. If, if you ask it to make me a sandwich, um, it will send you pictures of um, 
sandwiches. If you um, if you say anything potentially homophobic, it will reply, the complexities of human sexuality are rather beyond me at present, along with an emoji of a rainbow. Cleo's lead writer, Harriet Smith-Hughes, told BBC News, quote, the usual protocol is to rebut gendered abuse with gifts of strong, outspoken female figures. Meryl Streep, Star Trek's Captain Catherine Janeway, who is my favourite of all the captains in Star Trek, um, contrary to uh, some popular consensus, but anyone who disagrees is wrong. Uh, all Ripley and Alien, of course. Um, and it also reminded me Ian, of Microsoft's efforts a few uh, a couple of years ago to create a simulated teenage AI chatbot called Tay. If you remember, it took less than 20... <laughs> Do <laughs> you less- remember? It took less than 24 hours uh, for this little uh, innocent entity to be corrupted. And there was a Verge write-up at the time that said, pretty soon after Tay launched, people started tweeting the bot with all sorts of misogynistic, racist and Donald Trumpist remarks. And Tay being essentially a robot parrot with an internet connection, started repeating these sentiments back to users, proving correct the old programming adage, flaming garbage pile in, flaming garbage pile out. Ian, why can't we be trusted to treat AIs with respect? Because we can't be trusted to treat anything with respect. We are a horrible species, and I think we are beyond redemption, frankly. Okay, so we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're struggling to treat each other with respect, so why, should we, why are we surprised? Well, you, that's exactly right. We are struggling to treat each other with respect, and I, uh, I'm, obviously, I'm slightly more depressed by that than I am by the constant haranguing of chatbots, because they are ultimately code, and I don't think it has a, an impact on them psychologically. Uh, I mean, who knows in the future, with a learning AI, there is an ethical debate to be had about, you know, at what point is an AI smart enough to be self-aware and at that point you know we have to be very careful because we would be essentially creating a life form and then abusing it um, I mean I don't know if how many years away we are from creating a something that could actually be considered to be sentient but it's probably not going to be in our lifetimes so well I'm reminded of the film Her mm, yes I have seen it didn't enjoy it I really did enjoy it <laughs> did you it's bleak and it's very it's sad the bleakness about it that bothers me it just it, I don't know, it just felt very odd. For anyone who hasn't seen the film Her, it's a story about uh, quite a lonely man um, dealing with a, a divorce who ends up falling in love with a fully sentient uh, AI uh, woman and, um, you know, go to all lengths to re- replicate human relationships, you know, both sexual and emotional and everything else, even, you know, assisting with day-to-day stuff. I mean, obviously humans are, um, I suppose, for reasons of survival, very likely to form relationships with things and people um you know and that's probably one of the better things about humanity like we you know we are driven to collect together in groups and uh you know spend time together and you know fall in love and etc etc and i don't i don't necessarily want to cast judgment on people who do have feelings towards artificial intelligence um it feels a bit odd to me but then i'm you know siri doesn't provide me with enough information to uh, get a crush. You know, um, a friend of the show, sometimes co-host, also my brother Andy Hoyle of mm. CNET. Yes. Um, one of the first videos he ever did for CNET was him taking Siri out on a date, <laughs> which I think is still online, probably on CNET or YouTube. Yeah. If you want to 
and look it up. Andy Hoyle, Siri date, will probably bring it up. He looks so youthful. Oh, and it was also him. a very old, you know, it's the initial version of Siri. And I, I assume she's developed uh, more in her romantic well, capabilities since then. But I have not tested it. No, and me neither. And I don't have any uh, desire to. But again, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. I was thinking about, uh, you know, as we as we age, you know, we inevitably our thoughts turn to what we're going to do in, you know, our later years. Mm. And I was thinking about how little I enjoy spending you know time alone i mean sometimes i like to be, to be alone but some, sometimes I, I don't and i was thinking you know what happens if you're forced into a situation where you are alone um and could you know future versions of alexa and siri i've said some real words there that are going to annoy people but um could they could they help people feel less lonely and i think there's some, there are actually some very good studies out there that that yes the answer yeah. is yes particularly with the elderly we've seen this with robotic um home assistants in again in, in japan it's being used partly to combat the issues raised with an aging population mm. um but there are definitely studies out there that have have shown that 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 sort of a technology can have a a positive effect on people dealing with the you know the effects of loneliness or or, or well and the same with pets right i mean we, we we transpose a lot of human qualities on on animals that are completely relevant i i, t- I talk you know I, I suppose i shouldn't do it but I, you know um my daughter was um trying to uh, the, the cat had bitten her for, like but not hard but a warning nip you know in the way that they do mm. and she was uh, she was still cross about it and she was like i'm not letting the cat in unless he apologizes to me and i'm like is he he does not understand the concept of an apology or how he treating you was any in anything other than completely normal for him. He, you know, cats will defend, especially if you go for the belly, they will always defend themselves because they're very aware that their underside is very susceptible as they're quite delicate on the underneath. And, you know, so he's just doing what he's programmed to do, if you mm. like. Um, but it's quite difficult to explain to people that um, their cat is not a person and that, you know, well, some people, for example, me, just don't like to hear it because <laughs> when I'm home alone and my wife's at work and, yes. I, and she or she's taking the dog out uh, and it's just Robin and I mm. in the house, um, as you know well, I, I enjoy nothing more than singing to the cat yes. about his various parts. Yes. And I like to believe that not only does he hear me, but he appreciates oh, it. So he hears you and he just doesn't have any comprehension of what it is you're doing. I, it's as mm. unclear to him as it is to you when he meows. You know how I was talking about how we inevitably end up um, talking, uh, sort of uh, sexualizing AI, and it's just it's just human nature to be uh, abusive to other people. Yes. It is also inevitable that at some point in every podcast we are going to end up talking about our cats. Yes. Yes, I'm all for it, though. It's a good point to end. Um, Anyone listening, do feel free to let us know your views on uh, the aforementioned hello at techpodcast.uk. Fun question. What do you sing to your cat? Feel free to furnish us with an MP3 recording to play on next week's show. You're used to hearing the smooth, velvet sound of Nate's voice drizzled over your ears like a warm eardrum syrup. Topped off with the freshly squeezed citrus tang of an Ian Morris opinion. Supporters of the show at patreon.com forward slash UK tech enjoy second helpings every week. So pull up a chair, find your nearest spoon, and tuck into a sumptuous extra helping with no commitment. If you have any allergies, please inform a waiter.
We had some messages from uh, from listeners this week, but one I just wanted to pick out uh, was from Lewis, who wrote in to comment on my confusion over the term pie being used to mean a pizza, which I'd never heard, uh, much less uh, still understand. Uh, Lewis says, pie is just generic slang for a pizza of any kind. It's not a specific style, nor is it any different from your usual pizza as a round, usually flat dough with toppings, sauce and cheese baked in a high temperature oven. Some people, not me, also use... Well, he's written czar, mm. which was recently added to the Scrabble dictionary, at least the US one, he says. Now, that's... Well, now you're a two-letter Scrabble king, aren't you? So... Yes, and you can have Zo. Z-O right, is... Czar. Okay. Um, okay, good. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look that up because I didn't know that was a, a word. I actually wondered whether he was done a typo and it was it meant to be a different word because my spell check in our show notes um, is saying it isn't a word. But either way, pie means any type of pizza. I didn't know this. There is also um, a czar restaurant in uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, which is pizza. Oh! Google. I mean, this is what you listen to, ladies and gentlemen. You hear the latest tech insights, you hear that I sing to my cat, and you hear what we call pizzas. Shall I join the Urban Dictionary definition? Not really. Okay. But go on, some people might. Really obnoxious word for pizza. No self-respecting person uses it. Oh, okay. But I guess it's the end of pizza. Well, it's choice. Z. Z. Oh, I see. how you'd say it, I guess. Fascinating. Well, um... Uh, the text message keeps you informed about the British slang landscape and songs we sing to our domesticated f- quadrupeds. But let's check in with our friends at Daily Tech News Show in the US and hear what's been happening in the wider world of actual technology this week. This week on Daily Tech News Show, we dug into Apple News Plus as being the most immediately relevant of Apple's service announcements. But we also speculate on why they announce so much TV stuff with so little substance like dates or details. We think it might have to do with attracting other partners. We also talk about a vase you can throw to put out fires. That's right. And a detailed look at that damning Huawei report from the UK, which I interpret as you get what you pay for. All that and much more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, of course, to Naomi Kerbel of the Show Me The Way podcast for appearing earlier in voice form. Although I can confirm she was also in physical form. She is not a disembodied uh, insight generator. Uh, Thank you, of course, most of all to our patrons. I'm getting a phone call. Let me just cancel this. There we go. Thank you also, of course, even more so to our patrons for supporting us every week. If you're not yet a patron but would like to get our ad-free extended higher-quality versions of each week's show, plus listen to us live most weeks, head to patreon.com forward slash UK tech and help us finish the month with one more patron than we had last month. And I should point out, look out in your feed a little later on this week, maybe in the next couple of days, we put a public post up about some changes to our Patreon uh, tiers system. Uh, that's available now, and you can find it on the Twitter at Text Message Pod if you want to read it. But we're going to do an audible version of that as well, just so everyone is is aware of uh, of what's coming. That'll just be a, a regular little MP3 in your feed uh, later on this week. Right, and uh, Nate and I love to hear from everybody, and we read every email. Uh, so send comments to hello at techpodcast.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Text Message Pod to keep up to date with the most important UK technology headlines throughout the week. And thanks to everyone listening to us on our free ad supported feed. Uh, if you've got a minute to leave a review for us on iTunes, it's the best way of supporting us without spending a penny. Certainly is. And now, without further ado, I'm off for a sausage. Goodbye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 